Our scripture reading comes from Romans chapter 9, verses 9 through 20. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law we become conscious of our sin. This is the word of the Lord. My wife is a principal, um, and um, there's not everything about her job that I love. You know, I don't like watching her go through the tension and dealing with all kinds of issues. But the thing I love about my wife's job is the stories that she brings home about the kids. It's like, Supper time. I'm just waiting for another story. Tell me another story. Um, and uh, not long ago, she came home with one story that I thought was great, and it seems appropriate here. I'll tell you why in a minute. Her assistant principal is a man, and um, he shaves his head. And I mean, a lot of people shave their heads and all that. And some leave like a little stubble on it, and it's like cool and manly and all that. This guy, I mean, he shaves his head, and I think he does it every day. And I think he puts polish on top of his head. I mean, it's that kind of shaved head. So the assistant principal, whose name is Jerry, is helping out a little fellow who's in first grade uh, deal with his behavior. And the kid's a little out of control, and Jerry thinks, well, you know what, I'm going to get right down on his level and talk to him eye to eye, and we can work this out, and I can help him. And so he's right down in the kid's grill, you know, and he's talking to him, and talking to him. And finally the kid goes, I just need you to have some hair right now. <laughs> so, it's like, I, I can't hear what you're saying, man. I got, you've got to have, and, and he went on to tell some other things about Jerry's head, which I won't go into. But the point is, the kid was so distracted that he had to say what he was thinking in order to get to the place that he could listen right? So here's the point. I got to be honest with you about this passage before I can say anything else. I don't like this passage. This passage is really annoying and it rubs me the wrong way and it makes me depressed. It does. Seriously. Is this the way you want to start your day? 
There's no one righteous, not even one. No one understands or seeks God. All have turned away and become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are like open graves. Their mouths practice deceit. Their lips are dripping with the venom of vipers. Try that as your early morning prayer, right? Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And there's no knowledge of peace. And they don't fear God at all. Um, we, we're in the, the beginning of a series in the book of Romans. And you may remember that we've come to number three. Um, which is no one has enough of this, namely righteousness. The previous one is we all have too much of this sin. The one before that is we all have enough of this knowledge in order to be responsible to God. And I was thinking this week, I can't think of a worse way to start out the beginning of a school year than those three sermons. But it had to be. We had to address it. And today I want to address this. I want to address this really dark passage. And there's several things at the outset that we need to do in order to understand it. Okay? Here they are. First, when we interpret a passage like this, we have to remind ourselves that this is what is called polemical language. Okay? Typically, polemical language means argumentation, disputation, trying to make a point. And frequently, when we're in an argument and in a dispute, we make a point by being over the top with language sometimes. You know what I'm talking about? As a matter of fact, the base root of this word polemical, where it comes from, it actually means to shake or to cause to tremble. So Paul's words are polemical in that way. They, they make us shake and tremble. They, they make us think, man, Paul, please. Seriously, if this wasn't Paul, and somebody came up to you and started talking like this, and you didn't know he was quoting Paul, what would you say? If you were like me, you would say, dude, you just need to take a deep breath. Just chill out. The world's not that bad. But Paul says it, and we have to remind ourselves, it's polemical. It's that kind of language. The second thing we have to remind ourselves of is... This language is prophetic language. Now, I don't mean that it comes necessarily all from Isaiah or from Micah, one of the minor prophets or major prophets. What I mean is the nature of it is prophetic language. That is to say, prophetic language shouts. It condemns. It paints pictures, big, bold, broad pictures. And the pictures are not necessarily to be taken literally, but there's truth in there. I don't know if you noticed in your Bible, some of your Bibles might have given you this hint. All those words that I just read from Paul, none of them are his. Not even one. All he's doing is quoting Old Testament passages. Strung together, one after the other. Some come from Isaiah, some come from Psalms, some come from the Proverbs. They, they come from all over the Old Testament. He basically does what I do as a polemicist preacher sometimes. I grab a bunch of passages and I say, see, that's what it's like. That's what I'm trying to say right over there. Paul takes a number of passages, strings them together, and uses it in a polemical way. And his language is prophetic. 
Language that's prophetic is often extreme. And the extreme, a prophet would say, is necessary to make a point. Because otherwise, you're not listening. So the prophet makes extreme points. Now, I want to add something to the nature of polemical and prophetic language. A very dark, sinister enemy to interpretation of a biblical text or any other text is radical literalism. Okay? Now hear me carefully. If you know me, you know this is true. I stand under the authority of the Word of God. I believe it. It's God's Word, and I cannot wiggle away from it. What it says is what it says. Or to put it in another way, I believe in absolute truth. There are certain things that are just true. However, in the quest for understanding the authority of the Word of God or absolute truth on any topic, I can get sidetracked by interpreting everything in a literalistic manner. And then when I do, I eclipse the real message, and I miss it. For instance, this is kind of simple, but if I were to look at the words that are frequently used in the New Testament concerning Jesus, that he's the Lamb of God, and be literalistic with it, obviously I would believe Jesus to be a furry, four-footed creature that goes back. And if I did, I wouldn't get the message at all, would I? That's not the point. It's an analogy, it's a metaphor, it's an image. So frequently when a prophet speaks that way, he's speaking in a way that's really, really harsh. And if we take everything literalistically, we'll miss it. Because there's a deeper meaning behind the text itself. So first I said this language of Paul is polemical. Second I said it's prophetic, we need to remember that. And prophetic doesn't mean take it literalistically all the time. And third, and this sounds like a really harsh criticism of Paul, but hear me out, it's contradictory language. If you listen to Paul's words here and compare them to Paul's words elsewhere, you will say he is absolutely contradicting himself. Or if you listen to Paul's words here and take them literalistically and compare them to other passages of Scripture, you'll say Paul doesn't even believe in half of Scripture because a lot of Scripture says something else. It's like contradictory language, but for a purpose. Here's, here's an example of it. If you were to read these words and these words only, and be too literalistic about your interpretation, help me understand how you would ever get to this truth. Humanity is created in the image of God and reflects the image of God even if it's not following God. Tell me, according to this language, how you get there. My suggestion is you don't. But don't put Paul in a box and say he didn't believe in the image of God in humanity. We don't do that, right? We don't do that because it would be foolish. We know the scripture speaks about the image of God in humanity. Even flawed, sinful, hideous humanity still dimly reflects the image of God. But if you listen to Paul's words here, it almost sounds like he doesn't believe that. 
when in fact he does. So, how should we interpret very extreme language like this that is the authoritative word of God from Paul? Here's a couple of suggestions. When we read these words, there's no one righteous, not even one, no one who understands, and no one who seeks. We can't really take it completely literally. Otherwise, I have a really important question for you. What are you doing here, if that's true? You're seeking God. That's why you came this morning. Well, maybe you had ulterior motives. Maybe there's somebody you just wanted to meet. But for the most part, <laughs> we show up for church, we worship, we pray, we sing, because we're seeking God. And Paul says, nobody seeks God. Really, Paul? No, that's not really what he means. Not in that extreme form. What he means is this. We don't naturally, just naturally, out of the gate, always seek God. As a matter of fact, what we do is we seek happiness. And we seek to find satisfaction in stuff. And we do all these things to try to make our lives wonderful. And we try to do all these things to eliminate all the misery that's in our life. And then when we get to the end of our resources and we understand that nothing we're doing gives us happiness and peace and the list goes on, we turn to God. Only after we've exhausted our own intuitive, natural resources. Right? So Paul says, nobody just goes seeking for God. A friend of mine said to me one time, Bob, you have to remember concerning your job, and he was talking about his too. He said, most people don't come to you when they're on a winning streak. <laughs> That's true. It's true. It's true of pastors. It's true of counselors. It's true of a lot of people. It's not like, oh, everything's going great, so I'm going to go see my pastor. No, it's the other thing, right? My life's going downhill. I got to talk to somebody. That's why we are about seeking God. We seek our own interests. We try to figure it out ourselves. And then when we realize we're hopeless, we seek God. Paul also says that it seems that no one's righteous. There's nothing good about anybody. That's the way it sounds. Paul doesn't really mean it quite like that. If he did, he'd be contradicting Scripture. As a matter of fact, you know, if you take a look at Scripture, if you study it enough, you'll know that there are people in Scripture that God actually calls righteous and holy. Not compared to him, but the words are used concerning particular characters in Scripture. That man is righteous, that man is holy. As a matter of fact, even the word flawless is used about certain people in Scripture. Right? So if that's true, then what Paul says is not true. That contradictory language tension I'm talking about here. It evidences itself right here. So Paul can't be saying, surely he's not saying, there's no such thing as goodness anywhere in humanity. There is. What he is saying is it makes no difference how good you are or how much you seek to be altruistic all about the other. It makes no difference. At the root of it, it's about you. 
even when you're being good, it's for you. To make you feel better. To put you in a, a right position before other people. To make you feel better before God. To get ready so you can come to worship and take communion. It's all about you, says Paul. No matter what you do, self taints every good activity that flows from your heart. You know what the proof of that is? That we don't recognize it. The proof of it is we actually think we're good. The proof of it is a lack of self-understanding. Paul says, I want you to know the reality of yourself. You're not good, nor is anybody else good. On one occasion, Jesus was talking to one of the teachers of the law, and the teacher of the law, the young man, said, good teacher. And Jesus stopped him, and he said, what? Good? Why do you call me good? He could have said, hey, I'm the son of God, I am good, look at me. He didn't. He just said, hey, wait, why do you call me good? There is no one good except my Father in heaven. No one is untainted by sin except my Father in heaven. So don't use that, that word with human beings exclusively as if they're completely good. I think that's what Paul's saying. I, do you relate? Or am I just barking up the wrong tree? Do you get it? That when you feel you're most righteous and when you are according to the letter of the law, law most right you're still fully sinful because you're in there you can't get out you're that hampered and weighed down and infected by sin I hope you get it in spite of the fact that it's dark news, I hope you get it. Because when you do, it's the door to liberation. Another theme in this passage is he says, everybody's dishonest. Your lips are full of deceit. Self-deception goes deep, doesn't it? He doesn't mean that we speak lies constantly. What he means is self-deception is incredibly deep. You, you want to recognize how quick you can become dishonest? Think about the last time that you were cornered. When you had your back to the wall and somebody was accusing you of something and see how quick your impulse was to say something to cover yourself, true or not. We all do it. Paul is saying deception is so deep within us that before we know it, boom, it emerges. That's how dark our sinfulness is, he says. That's why there's no honesty among us. So if Paul's trying to paint a picture, you know, a picture paints a thousand words or speaks a thousand words or whatever that phrase is. If he's trying to paint a picture, what's this picture look like? Here's what the picture looks like. The picture is a picture of humanity. Namely, our world and its history. The picture? Look around you. 
watch, read the news. War, slavery, racism, child abuse. The list goes on and on. I have a child who's in the news business. And she said to me on one occasion, Dad, you have no idea how bad the stories are that come across my email feed all day long. Our world is sick. And Paul's identifying it. He's saying, look around you. We're killing each other here. So that's part of the picture. The world, just look around. It's a mess. But there's another part of the picture. It's our personal history. Paul's painting a picture of. He's saying it's not just them out there, or to use a phrase from an old spiritual, it's not my brother or my sister who's in need, oh Lord. It's me who's standing in need of prayer. When I look around my world, I see myself in my world. So his picture is about my personal history as well. If Paul were here today, I'm sure he would agree with this connection. And the connection I'm making is this, to the words of Jesus. Jesus tried to help people understand how deep sin and guilt went on a number of occasions. One occasion was when a woman was caught in adultery and the teachers of the law brought her before Jesus. And they said, the law says we should stone this woman. So we're bringing him here, her, to you, teacher, to see what you have to say. And Jesus stooped and started writing in the dirt. And then he said, whoever is without sin, pick up the first stone. Before he was done writing, all her accusers were gone. Our personal history is weighed down by sin. On another occasion, Jesus said, and you remember, maybe if you were here last week, the analogy to this in, in the previous passage in chapter 2 and beginning with verse 1 through 4 and 3. Jesus, in effect, says, I want you to understand the depth of sin. You say you're not a murderer? Really? You ever hated your brother? That's murder. You say you're not an adulterer? Let me ask you a question. Have you ever lusted after someone else who's not your spouse? You're an adulterer. Paul's painting that personal history of our hearts. He's also painting a third picture, if these are three pictures. And it's a picture of the nature of sin. Not just my personal sin, not the sin of the world, but the nature of sin itself. Did you notice in the language that he borrows from the prophets here to describe the nature of humanity, the nature of our personal sin, and the nature of sin itself, how infrequently there are any specifics related to actions of sin? Why? Because frequently we think of sin as an activity. And there's truth to that. But sin is not an activity at its root. Sin is a disposition of the heart from which all activities flow. 
Or to put it another way, we are not saints who occasionally sin. We are sinners straight through who've been given the grace of God. So what's the solution to all this? By the way, next week, I told you, Josiah, our college pastor, he gets the good fortune of talking about grace. And uh, so when we were talking this week, I said, his nickname is Cy with me. I said, Cy, look, this is really hard. This is the third week in the row I've been pounding away at this stuff. And I got to say something hopeful. I mean, I got to give some, some life here. I don't want to steal your thunder next week, but I got to say something about grace. So we talked a bit. And what I'm saying is not stealing anything he's going to say next week. But what I'm saying, you've got to have it. When you look at this passage, you take it seriously, you've got to have this next part. Here it is. Number one, we need to admit we're naked. Now you may say that's a weird way to lead in, Bob. Remember the story, Hans Christian Andersen, wonderful story of the emperor's new clothes. Remember that story? Well, if you don't, I'll tell it to you again. Or if you do, I'll remind you of it. There's an emperor who loves clothing. He's very vain, and he wants brand new, the latest, the best clothing that there is. And so, as is typical in that era, you bring in a tailor, and he brings in all kinds of fabrics and silk, and he makes clothes for you. So he brought in two tailors to make clothes because they promised him that they could make him the most beautiful clothes on earth. And here's what they said. These clothes, they were like philosophers, these clothes are going to be so beautiful that only people who have hearts and eyes of virtue will be able to see them. If you don't have a virtuous heart, you won't even be able to recognize these clothes. That's how beautiful they are. As a matter of fact, they were con artists in the story, so he lets these guys get to work on his clothes. <clears throat> it's taken a little while, and so he sends some of his ministers to check up on the seamstress, and he walks in, the ministers do, they walk in, and they see these guys at their spinning wheels, spinning, you know, like the clothing. But there's nothing there. The wheel's spinning, and there's no thread. And the ministers look for a while, and they look and look, and finally they don't want to feel stupid because they've been told that these clothes are so beautiful, only people who are very wise can even see them. So they look and they look and not wanting to be stupid, they go back to the emperor and they say, these are the most beautiful clothes we've ever seen. They didn't see anything. He gets frustrated because it's taken so long, he sends ministers to check on them again. And at this point, these con artists say, look, we're working on this, they are beautiful clothes, but we need more money. Because this is a big project. He gives them more money. Second round, the ministers go. And they look and there's nothing there and they come back and tell the king, the emperor, Finally, the emperor says, i got to go check it out myself. And he goes to where the seamstress are, and they're still spinning their wheels with nothing in it. And like them, he doesn't want to be accused of being foolish. And he looks, and he looks, and he says, those are the most beautiful clothes I have ever seen. Keep up the good work. 
He goes back to his palace, and at a certain date, there is a parade to parade the emperor and his new clothes. The seamstress come in, and they put the emperor up on a pedestal, and they dress him with his new, invisible, non-existent clothes. And the emperor goes out to his kingdom and walks in a parade, buck naked. And all the people know the story. And they too don't want to look foolish. So they're acclaiming their emperor until there's an awkward moment of silence. And a little boy, kind of like the one I mentioned earlier, said, Hey, the emperor doesn't have any clothes. Point of the story? We might be fooled into thinking that we're righteous. And everybody knows the truth. We're not. And everybody can see it. So what's the point? We've got to admit the problem and accept the diagnosis before there can be a cure. We're not saints. We're sinners redeemed by the grace of God and called saints. The second part of the solution is this, to remember, as Paul says, the law can't fix it. The law can't justify it. It can't make you better. That wasn't the point of the law. When Moses got the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law and handed them down to the people of Israel, he wasn't saying, look, I got the silver bullet. Now you're going to be good. Now you're going to be righteous. He was saying, in effect, here's the law of God. If you want to live in a way that doesn't destroy you and your culture, live within these parameters. And then he gave them the sacrificial atonement system for the forgiveness of sins. And then Jesus steps into that whole history, law, prophet, sacrificial atonement, and becomes the sacrifice for sin. Paul says, law won't solve this. It only keeps you away from what you ought not to be. It won't make you righteous. There's no way it can happen. Third thing, and this is the key. Paul says, all of that was bad news, and here's the good news. Your righteousness comes through faith. Can I say something about faith? In this context, it doesn't, believe, it doesn't mean, oh, that's cool, I believe that. It doesn't. It means you understand that you need forgiveness and grace. Remember back in chapter 2? Somebody's helping to emphasize the point. Back in chapter 2, uh, verse 4, Paul says, Don't you know that contempt for the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience is wrong? Don't you realize that God's kindness leads to repentance? Don't you realize that the whole point of grace is so you can be forgiven? The whole point of grace is so you can understand who you are and repent, and then you have freedom in Christ? Don't you understand that, says Paul? 
Faith means accepting your own condition and repenting of your sins. It doesn't just mean saying, oh, what a great story. I think I'll believe that. It means accepting it and moving towards repentance. And it also means faith in Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the righteous one, and he's the one that distributes that righteousness to you. It doesn't come when you just admit you're not righteous. It comes when you receive his righteousness. I don't usually go around telling people what my favorite verse in the Bible is, although you probably heard me use it before, and I want to tell you what it is again. It's 2 Corinthians 5.21. Every time I read it, it stuns me. Every time I say it, I'm overwhelmed. God made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus Christ, to become, to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I am no more righteous in myself than I was the day before I accepted Jesus Christ. But because of Jesus Christ, God's righteousness is transferred to me. That is the most amazing thing I have ever heard. And it continues to stun me every day. You know, there's some common responses to that kind of news. One might be something like this. It's too good to be true. The answer? You're right. It is too good to be true. But it's true. Second response I've often heard is, I don't deserve it. Well, that's the point. <laughs> you don't deserve it. But you get it anyway. Third thing I've heard. I just don't understand this. Join the club. You don't have to understand it. You just have to believe it. I love uh, old hymns, and we sing them in the first service, and you guys are not so fortunate to hear a lot of them. We always get them worked in here a little bit, but one we probably have never sung here, I, I think says it well. The title of the song is, I Stand Amazed in the Presence. And the words go, I stand in the maze of the, in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he can love me, a sinner condemned unclean. How marvelous, how wonderful. And my song shall ever be, how marvelous, how wonderful is God's love for me. Verse 2 goes like this. It says, he took my sins and my sorrows. And he made them his very own. They weren't his sins because he had none. They weren't his sorrows because sorrow of sin was not his personally. He took my sins and my sorrows. He made them his very own. He bore my burdens to Calvary and suffered and died alone. How marvelous, how wonderful. And my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. 
That's the good news. Have you accepted it? It is too good to be true. But it's true. You don't deserve it. That's the point. But you get it. And you might not understand it, but it doesn't matter. Just accept it. Let's pray. Lord, we've uh, heard your word, and we've done our best to understand it. And it's clearly the case that we haven't understood it completely or with full accuracy because we're flawed. The preacher's flawed, the listeners are flawed. But that's part of the beauty of the story. That's why we need forgiveness and that's why it's offered because we're flawed. We can't even get the story perfectly right. But we can understand it enough to receive it. So give us the grace, Lord, of repentance and forgiveness and righteousness, which comes through Christ and Christ alone. In his name we pray. Amen.